Welcome to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Join hosts Adam Hall and Walt Serrato as they sit down with some of the biggest names in Ohio high school basketball and beyond. This show and all of our shows are available to listen to completely free anywhere that you can find podcasts. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's get to it. Hello, it's Adam Hall here with my co-host, Walt Serrato. And tonight we are excited to be joined by Paul Barlow, current athletic director at Magnificat High School and former head girls basketball coach at Hathaway Brown. Paul, thank you for coming on tonight and welcome to the Holding Court Podcast. Thank you guys for having me. It's, it's an honor and uh, certainly looking forward to the conversation. Okay, Paul, let's, let's start at the beginning and take us back to your younger years growing up. Which sports did you play, you know, as you came into your high school career and then throughout high school? And was basketball the first one to, to grab a hold of you or was it another sport? I mean, I started playing, you know, back when I was in grade school. I went to Assumption Grade School in, in Broadview Heights. So a lot of CYO sports, um, you know, basketball and baseball were my primary uh, focuses as I got in towards high school. So I, I would say it was both of those. I played, you know, both of those at Walsh Jesuit and then ended up going to Kenyon College and ended up playing baseball at Kenyon. I, I guess from a playing standpoint, I probably would be lying if I didn't say that baseball was probably my love, I guess, um, growing up. But um, basketball was a close second. So it, it was it was kind of an even thing for me. So, Coach, um, over the years, uh you coached uh, a multitude of sports uh, outside of basketball as well. Kind of take us through how did that coaching journey start for Paul Barlow? Talk about the different sports you coached and and maybe if there was a thing or two you learned while coaching each sport that maybe you did apply to um, basketball. You know, I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about Eric Musselman from Arkansas and and how he really watches baseball and soccer and studies that sport and has used things from those sports to help make him a better basketball coach. So maybe speak to that a little bit for us. Probably should have learned how to say no. That would have been a really good suggestion that somebody could have told me early on. Um, I started coaching primarily basketball. You know, I started back when I was in um, – Actually, back when I was in high school, I started coaching and helping out with CYO programs because I came from a Catholic grade school. So that was just kind of, you know, sort of what you did if you had some time to help out and give back a little bit. Once I got into the coaching world and at, at Hathaway Brown, I ended up taking over the golf program. Basically, the same year I became the head basketball coach, I became the head golf coach, which was in 99 or 2000 or right, right around in there. And, um, you know, the school was good to me and, and they needed coaches in other areas. And I ended up being thrust into softball. So I became kind of a three season coach over there with, um, with golf, basketball and softball. You know, it was a, it was great. I coached golf for 11 years. I coached softball for seven as the, as the head coach of both of those. Um, I actually spent one year as the head field hockey coach, which is a totally different story. Um, I know nothing about field hockey. I still know nothing about field hockey, but they needed somebody to coach and basically run the team and manage the team. And they asked me to do it. And we, we had, we, I, I did it for one year and it was fun. The girls were great. And, um, you know, I learned, you know, 
a little bit about the sport, enough to know that I should never be on the sidelines of a field hockey. To answer your question, yeah, I, I think that there were a lot of things that, I mean, you know, people think of me, I guess, mostly from a basketball standpoint for for whatever that's worth in terms of coaching. But I think there was a lot that I took away from just dealing with different athletes in different situations that presented themselves, you know, both in golf and in softball, um, you know, which are two totally different ends of the spectrum, so to speak, from basketball. You know, golf is a much more you know, I'm not a swing coach. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a, but it was more of a mental grind to, to get the best out of those kids. And I think that that helped me when it came to basketball, to be able to see that mental side that needed to be addressed with a lot of our players uh, in, in those runs that we had, you know, golf is more analytical. You know, the kids are more analytical the, you know, there, there's a, um, you know, there's, there's course management and, mental approach and not losing it after one hole and, you know, being able to take that in, into a basketball game and, you know, having a kid start the game really bad, picking up two fouls in the first four minutes of the game and not putting their tail between their legs and being able to maybe revert back to some of the stuff that I saw on the golf course. I think that did help me. You know, softball was a little bit different. Softball is another, you know, look, I mean, it's more of a pitcher catcher game, but being able to revert back to some of that, some of the lessons that I saw that we had to deal with, with different types of athletes and different personalities, I think certainly helped um, the entire way, you know, coaching basketball. And, and um, it also let me work with kids of different skill. Um, while our basketball program at times was very talented, sometimes our softball program wasn't as talented and having to adjust to maybe kids that weren't as physically gifted, certainly led me to probably more success on the basketball floor because of being able to fall back on those experiences. You know, I, I heard once that a free throw is the equivalent of a four foot putt. And that one always stuck with me. Let, let's talk about your tenure at Hathaway Brown. You experienced a run of sustained success that few coaches really at any level, any sport can say they experience. Seven consecutive trips to the state title game, two runners up followed by five consecutive state championships. There's a 37-game win streak in there, and you had that graduating class. I'll never forget when you told me this. We had a graduating class that did not lose a postseason game for their entire career. Boys, girls, don't know if that's ever going to be touched again, given how competitive things are now. There's even a state title for golf. You didn't mention it. I know you're humble, but you won a state title coaching golf in 2010. Is there one state championship that sticks out over the others? I mean, I guess... You would probably say the first one that we won in 2009 against Wapakoneta um, was obviously special at coming off of two losses in the state in the state title game. In 2007, the first year we made it to the Final Four, you know, that was, I mean, going to the Final Four that year was unbelievable experience, but not. it was also something I don't think we ever expected in that year. We knew we were good, but we never expected to get to the Final Four. Um, I think once we got down to the final four, it was sort of gravy that first year. It was kind of like, you know, whatever happened. Not that we weren't trying to win, but I think it was so, we were just so happy to be there. We were playing with house money. Um, you know, I remember winning the state semifinal game against Sandusky Perkins with, you know, a, a guy that is is a great basketball coach in his own right in Ray Neal. And, um, and, and Ray is a, is a good coach. And they had a girl named Sierra Brevard who was, six six and shot threes 
and and then also went into the post and I was like, well, how the hell are we going to defend that? I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're terrible as it is. How are we going to guard that? So, you know, we ended up getting through that and then we got waxed by Warsaw Riverview with the Doherty sisters. They were incredible. I mean, Kristen Doherty, who's now, you know, with the OHSAA and certainly never lets me forget that, um, that, that she waxed us that year. You know, it, it was a great experience and we had a great time. The next year was a little tougher. We, sh- we felt we should have won that year. That was the year of the blizzard. Not to, you know, the, the year that the, the tournament got pushed back to Monday because um, Ohio State and Columbus shut down for two days and we were in the hotel for five days. It was a pain. You know, that was a pain. Um, another learning experience about, how, you know, what do you do with kids for five days in the hotel, two of which you're not allowed to leave the building? It, it was a difficult situation, not, not only for us, but for every team involved. And so I, I would say to answer your question, Probably that first state title was the most special. I, I mean, they're all special in their own different ways, but but because we had been through two losses, I mean, you know, the first year we just got drilled. Warsaw Riverview was better than we were. I get it. The second year we lost to Alter, and I mean, we just didn't play well. And I mean, I think we had, you know, it was we we felt like it was our we we really wanted to go down there and show something, and you know, and then we started that that run and. Um, you know, I, I would also tell you that the last one was really special for different reasons because it was it was they were all great groups of kids. Um, that group had a couple kids that were part of that class that never lost a playoff game, which I think is a, a, a really unbelievable thing when you think back about a high school kid's career that they're going to be able to walk out and say they I mean, they never experienced their season ending without holding up a trophy. And that's really hard to believe. For, for some of those kids. And um, again, they were all special. They were all different. Uh, the kids were all, you know, they were great kids. You know, even the golf state championship. I mean, you, 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 you mentioned that. That was a totally different thing, too, because the difference, the back nine of the state tournament on the gray course, you can hear a pin drop. You know, I mean, you, you hear a squirrel running over in the leaves over there and everybody freaks out because, you know, somebody. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the tension is just something totally different and it was totally different to experience. And, um, you know, and, and one of the kids that played for, for me was a girl named Nia Marshall and she was on both state title teams. She won the golf that year as a sophomore and basketball and, um, you know, two totally different, different experiences for her. So coach with the success that you experienced, uh, over all those years, how did you keep your, your players and teams hungry? Uh, because it, it can be very easy to become complacent. So what are some things you did? To their credit, they understood. So I think part of it in those runs were, you know, it was a blessing and a curse because they didn't want to be the kids where the streak ended, right? So, I mean, I think that that was a self-motivating factor once we got into certainly, I mean, you know, winning the state title, but even getting to the final four. I mean, you know, even, even after those two years where we lost, that third year, if we would have lost in the regional finals, People would have said, oh, you know, it, it, it was, you know, it was a terrible year because we didn't get back to the final four. And I don't think, you know, those kids didn't want to be part of that. You know, that group of kids that first year we won the state title, I think they were very driven to win the state title because they had lost, you know, a, a core group of those kids had lost it the, the first two years. I mean, we came up a game short. Then it became a situation where a lot of them just didn't want to be the ones to have it not be, you know, they didn't want to be on that team that didn't get down there, that didn't get to the final four, and then ultimately that didn't win. Um, I think for for us as a coaching staff, and I had a lot of different assistants, 
that that were with me. One of them is on the podcast here with us. They were um, there. There were different ways and different ways to motivate kids. And you know, I think some kids needed to you know have some things you know brought up like, hey, you don't want to be part of this. You know, we don't want it to end here. This isn't going to end with us. And other kids needed to be more analytical about you know, hey, the, the, this, what, what are we doing here? What, what's not working here? Why is this not going the way we need it to go? But, but a lot of it too, I mean, in, in truth, you know, when you get into those state tournament runs of seven or eight games or, you know, I mean, whatever it is, whether you take the buy or don't take the buy, you know, there's a lot of things that have to go right. You got to stay healthy. You can't have the officials take a game away from you. You can't have a bad shooting night. Or if you do have a bad shooting night, you got to figure out something else to manufacture points. And I think a lot of it, you know, you have to have the, the community support, the parent support. You have to have the, the kids that believe in the system and believe that as much as sometimes you act like a raving lunatic, that you actually do know what you're talking about. And, you know, the, sometimes that success that we had padded some of the coaching style maybe that, you know, myself or my assistants had. I, I think that a lot of those kids were very self-motivated, self-driven kids that just they did not want it to end with uh, in their watch. And I think that we, I, as a head coach and some of the assistants were beneficiaries of that because, um, you know, it's easy to go, fall down by 10 points and throw your arms up in the air and be like, Oh, okay, we're done. You know, our, our kids just wouldn't let that happen. And we always seem to have one kid or two kids that when things went wrong, they would step up and, and be like, okay, give me the ball. Or they're going to make that tough defensive stop or they're going to get that rebound or they're going to get that steal or, and, and I think that, you know, not a lot of programs can say that. And, and look, by the, by the way, I'd be also sitting here lying to everybody. If I didn't say that, you know, once we, we started winning, more kids wanted to come and play in that program. And the bottom line is you got to have some good kids and good players or, you know, it's just not going to work. I mean, you got to have those kids in the program. So, Coach, the 2022-2023 season is officially drawn to a close with the boys' state championships over the weekend. <laughs> Many coaches now are shifting their attention to making those off-season plans. What did a typical off-season look like for you from April through July at Hathaway Brown? So I've been out of coaching now just over eight years, but 10 years removed from those teams. I think that things are a little bit different now in terms of how off seasons are structured. I think we did more team oriented activities back then than are done now. I remember when we, when I started at HB, you know, we used to run a JV summer league at Hathaway Brown. Who the hell runs a JV summer league for girls basketball now? I mean, if there is, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't probably exist and I'm not saying it should. I'm just saying, I think things have, progressed from where they were. We used to do a lot of shootouts on the weekend. We would go to University of Toledo or we'd go down to Cincinnati and Lakota West would have a shootout where they would bring in some teams from Kentucky or we'd go down to Berlin Highland. We would go to a team camp every year. We went to Notre Dame. We went to Michigan State. We went to North Carolina. We went to Ohio State. We went, I mean, you know, I, I don't know how many programs actually do a lot of that now because I think now a lot of things have focused, they're, they're much more focused on individual train individual training skill training and i'm not saying they shouldn't be and 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 aau when it comes to july you know the aau teams are important in the spring and in in, in that july month i understand that you know i still am a firm believer kids got to we, we did this when i was there you know we lifted year around i mean we lifted during the season off season preseason 
you know, I, I think teams do do that, but I think it's easy to get away from. I even see it, you know, in, in programs that I see now. I mean, how many programs do you know that lift through the year, uh, including during season for, for girls? I mean, I'm not, this is a girls oriented conversation when I'm saying this, but you know, I mean, you know, time, you know, kid, you're practicing two hours a day. Coaches are worried about getting ready for the next game. I think it's certainly easy to, you know, let the lifting part of it slide, you know, even if you're trying to get those kids in and do a 25 minute maintenance lift, which is what we tried to do for two days a week. I still think that, you know, look, you are not going to become a great shooter off the dribble. And this is nothing against it, but you, I mean, you know, you, you need to get in the gym and shoot 500 shots in front of a chair going full court against pulling up in front of the chair. I mean, repetition is the only thing that's going to make you better from a skill standpoint. And I think that, you know, there's not a lot of kids that want to get in that gym now and, and, and do that. You know, I, I think there's, you know, there are some, you know, I think a lot of coaches now, I, I would say coaches now utilize those, what are now going to be 13 days between May 15th and the end of July. They're going to utilize those 13 instructional days, you know, to, to get a jump on putting their offense and putting their defense in. And I, and I certainly wouldn't say don't do that. You know, I think that that's certainly important, um, but I, I don't I, I still think one of the greatest things that I always like, you know, the team camp thing to me was great. You know, it was fun. We went and played other teams, but it, you know what that was? That was all about a bonding thing. That was about getting the kids away get, and frankly, getting the kids away from the parents and be let's get let's let's go somewhere for three or four days and let the kids just become a really close knit team. So that when we were in dogfights during the year they could reply, reflect back on, you know, that time that they spent together. And I think sometimes that gets a little lost in the shuffle now in, in terms of that team bonding aspect um, at the expense of, you know, maybe other things that are out there. You know, coach, you brought something up there uh, th that I wanted to, to, to touch on um, the 13 days. Obviously this is something that's new <laughs> starting May 15th. You're allowed to start <laughs> to use your instructional days. You get 13 days now. Uh, from my viewpoint, this is a play for football um, as a way to slowly introduce the concept of spring football. I know many football coaches across the state are taking advantage of it, uh, doing seven on sevens, bringing in college coaches. Um, were you for that decision as an athletic director, increasing the amount of days uh, for football and basketball? Uh, or was that something that you wish they would have kept at the 10 days? Um that's a great question. So just to, to add one thing, you know, for soccer now it's 18 days because they're now allowed 13 between May 15th and July, whatever it is, the, the last 10 or whatever it is, the 20th. And then they're allowed another five in, in that last week or two preparation before August 1st tryouts, which is probably, to your point, a way to try to equalize things with football, which it's probably all going that way. But um, to answer your question, I am probably for the increase in instructional days, and I would say it for two reasons. One is I, as an administrator, am taking it upon myself to hire the best coaches I can to lead and be part of our program. So it would seem to me, from my perspective, I want our coaches to be able to work with our players as much as possible, or I wouldn't have hired them to put them in that position. I would rather have our coaches do the skill development and do, um, you know, the, the, the instructional piece of it 
versus a player that we have going out and having parents have to pay for, you know, individual skill instruction. That is by no means by me saying, I don't think those people do a good job. And I don't think that they should be doing that. There's a lot of very, very good skill people out there that, that are, are really good at what they do and um, are, are probably better than some of the coaches that are out there. But I think my job is to hire the right people to run our program and, and to limit the amount of time that they're with our or, or able to be with our players and instruct them, I, I think is challenging. However, that being said, they are still, even without those 13 days, they're still able to do four-person instructional groups and, and do individual instruction. So, I mean, part of that is a moot point in a certain way. But I I, th- I, I do think it gives the coaches um, a better base going into the season than, than maybe they had just with 10. You know, there, there are states, as you know, that have, you know, they're allowed to do anything they want all year around. I, I'm not sure that that's the right answer, too, because I think you're running into kids getting burned out. Um, and if we're also trying to promote kids playing other sports so that they don't get burned out in, in a certain sport, I think that that's, you know, having unlimited instructional days is not going to help that by any means. Um, but I, I would be I, I'm for the additional days. And I also think it's good that they stretched. I, I think once you get into May 15th, you know, most of those coaches are doing open fields, open gyms, whether we're talking about whether I'm talking about volleyball, whether I'm talking about basketball, whether I'm talking about, you know, soccer, field, whatever I'm talking about. I, I think that though there's a lot of um, those coaches that are, you know, they're, they're running open fields that are non-instructional days, but you know, they're still running them as captains. I mean, so at least letting the coaches instruct during those times, I think is probably more beneficial than not. So coach about halfway through your final season at Hathaway Brown in 2014, 15, you announced that you'd be stepping down as associate athletic director and head girls basketball coach to accept the position of athletic director at Magnificat High School in Rocky River, Ohio. How difficult of a decision was it for you to hang up that whistle and pursue this new challenge? Um, it was tough. Halfway Brown was really good to me. The guy, the, the, the gentleman that was the head of Halfway Brown school was a guy named Bill Christ. And he was an incredibly dedicated supporter of athletics. And, um, he felt we could be the best academic as well as the best athletic school. And he, um, made it very comfortable for me to be there. For me, it, it was a, it wasn't a decision of, I'm done coaching. I don't want to coach anymore. It was more of a decision for me about, I wanted to be an athletic director. And when the opportunity presented itself to be the athletic director at the biggest all girls school in the state, it was of of which my wife is an alum and of which we live 10 minutes away from. It was really almost a no brainer to at least apply for the job. And then when I got offered the position to take it, I was the one that when I came over, to Magnificat, a lot of people were like, oh, you know, you're probably going to get back into coaching here. And I said, I feel strongly that at a school our size, with 15 varsity sports, there's no way the athletic director should be the head coach of any program. I just think that, first of all, the perception is is difficult there for the other sports that, you know, we have 460 girls involved in athletics. And that's, you know, it's hard to, for them to look and be like, oh, well, the guy that's running the athletic department is also the head coach of that program. Obviously, he cares more about that than anything else. And even if that's not true, I, I think that that perception is there. And the, the person I learned a lot about athletic administration from 
always taught me that perception is reality. And um, so from that standpoint, it wasn't that hard of a decision to not coach. It was hard to walk away from Hathaway Brown and and the kids that were there and the relationships I had with those kids um, that were still in the program. You know, that, that a couple of them, some of them were freshmen that were really talented kids that I know came there to play because of the success we had in that program and um, to, to have to get up in front of them and tell them that I had to pursue a different opportunity was was difficult. You know, it's tough sometimes on game days. You know, I miss being on the sideline. I miss, you know, standing across the sideline from Julie Solis or Andy Booth or Andy Fishman or Rob Matula or Travis Galloway or, you know, these these people that are still coaching that I coached, you know, and, and, and Pam Davis and, you know, had, had wars with and enjoyed it. And, um, you know, it was the right decision for me at the right time, you know, at the, at the right time. And, um, you know, do I miss the shootouts in the summer and the open gyms and the, you know, no, I'm busy enough with everything else that I, that I'm doing. And, you know, I, I don't miss that part of it. I miss the interaction with the kids because, you know, as the athletic director, you're not probably as close to the kids as you are as a coach, um, because they kind of keep you at an arm's length a little bit because, you know, you're, you're kind of, you know, the, the, the person in charge, you know, it, it, in the ultimate scheme of it, um, as tough as it was, I still, you know, it was eight years ago last week that I took, I started at, at Magnificat and I, I still think it was the right decision and I, I enjoy doing what I'm doing now. So Paul, one of the hot topics right now in Ohio, as it relates to high school sports, is the public versus private debate. I was fortunate enough to have been mm-hmm. on your staff, your final year at HB and, and got to see behind the scenes of a prominent girls basketball program at a private school. Now, with your position as athletic director, Magnificat, another high-profile private school, you have schedules to fill out that are a blend of public versus private schools. Do you ever envision a private or parochial division ever becoming a reality in Ohio? And if so, would you be for it or against it? I, I don't know that that will ever happen because I think that I think that while I think the competitive balance formulas have brought the field closer together that the OHSA has put together, I, I don't think the OHSA is, I don't think they're a fan of the split by any means. And I'm not sure if, I, I don't know that you want to ever go down the, I mean, are you really going to go down the road of then who's the real state champion? You know, who, if, if there's a parochial school division and a private school division and you, you're, you know, who's the real state champion? I mean, are you going to, are you going to really open that Pandora's box up? And if you take out, if you do split like that, are you going to then have a situation where, you know, the recruiting, you know, guidelines that are in place for the, for the parochial and private schools that are out there, if you take all of those away and just make it an open season, I, I, and I'm, I don't know that that's good either, that it just becomes a total free for I think that that's a very slippery slope. I enjoy the public school you know, private school dynamic. Um, I have a lot of great friends that are athletic directors at public schools. I'm, I'm currently the president of the Northeast Ohio Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association, at least for another few months. And then my two-year term is thankfully over. It's, I'm kidding, but is over. And Heather Beck, who's the athletic director at Illyria, will be taken over. And Heather is a good friend of mine. And you know, a lot of those people that are on our executive committee are, you know, it's a mix of public and private people in that room. And, you know, um, there's a lot of great people in that room. And I don't think the people, as we sit in that room of, of where we have 26 of us 
together. I don't, I don't think anybody in that room, as competitive as we all are, ever look at it as, oh, they're at a public school, they're at a private school, or, or at least not in that room. Maybe behind closed doors, some people do, but I, I don't think they do. I think it's, um, I think there's a healthy relationship and rivalries that are formed. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, uh, for, for me, I, I'm happy that we've stayed together. You know, I, I think that the, the, you know, for me, filling out a schedule sometimes is difficult. I mean, I'm not going to lie about that. I mean, for, for us at Magnificat, you know, we're independent. We're not in a conference. So, you know, sports like basketball and volleyball and soccer that are, you know, some of the higher priority, you know, not priority, but higher profile sports are sometimes difficult to fill because there are some schools around you that, that may not feel they're ready to play or want to play or, you know, um, and I understand that. Um, so sometimes it causes us to travel more and, and, you know, we, you know, unfortunately when Magnificat hired me, they got a guy, as, as you know, Walt, that believed that you play better to get better. And I've taken that into every sport we have. And I don't, um, I, I don't look at, you know, we're, we're, we're everybody my you know, basically makes the playoffs. You know, I, I would rather see our kids challenged. And then that's a benefit I think that we can provide as opposed to some schools that are in conferences, which, you know, our conference titles are great and being all conference is great for some of those kids. But, you know, I think that a lot of times now people are, you know, you're judged more on how far you go in the state tournament in a given sport versus how many conference titles you win. So I, I think that sometimes being able to play the best of the best is a better thing. So, Paul, uh, you know, earlier you stated that a lot of times per- perception is is reality. And, you know, I was down at the state tournament this past weekend and I'm flipping mm-hmm. through the program and I, I'm reading the biographies on the teams. And I'm not sure who wrote them. But, but as I'm flipping through reading, it's, well, this kid transferred from here. This kid moved in from here. These two kids came in from here. Oh, and by the way, they happen to be Division One players. You know, we're seeing, and, and I'm going to get to this later, but I think this is a, a good time to bring this up. The transfer portal. We're seeing mm-hmm. it in college right now. And it's continuing mm-hmm. to grow. And, you know, th- there was a, uh, a, a tweet that came out. And, and it broke it down, you know, how many D3 kids went in the portal? How many D2 kids went in the portal? How many D1 kids went in the portal? And how many were still left in the portal? Because they thought the grass might be greener on the other side, and it wasn't. It seems as though we're moving into that in high school sports and getting closer to that with these kids coming and going and, you know, talking to one coach down at the state tournament, you know, hey – we're going to be really good next year. But if this kid leaves and goes somewhere else, we're, we're not going to be quite as good. Mm-hmm. Is enough being done, in your opinion, to address that? Is there enough things in place to police that? Because, you know, for some of these teams who it's their only shot to ever get to Columbus, we're essentially robbing some of these kids of a dream to win a state championship when these other schools – can just bring in whoever they want, whenever they want. I guess. I guess your thoughts yeah, I, on that? I, no, I understand what you're saying, um, and I'm sensitive to that issue. I, I do think that the latest, uh, you know, not tweak, but you know, revision of the transfer bylaw a few years ago, where they said, you know, if you transfer from a public to a private school, you basically set out the second half in the postseason of that first year you transfer. And I think that's got to be a stringent deterrent, right? I mean, if you're a kid that's a sophomore and you're going to transfer, 
as a junior and you can only play the first half of the season and you have to sit out the second half in the playoffs. I mean, I think that's a pretty big deterrent. You know, if it was the reverse, like it used to be where, okay, you had to sit out the first half of the season, but you could play the second half in the playoffs. I mean, like, I mean, respectfully, if I was a, if I was a head coach, I'd be like, sign me up. Where's the six foot five girl that I can have that happen to me for from a basketball standpoint. But I, but I mean, I, I mean, in truth, I mean, I, and I'm not trying to be funny about it, but I mean, I, I, I get it. I think this is, I think this, that change, you know, has helped, you know, maybe become more of a deterrent for that. I totally understand, you know, that part of it, a part of the transfer part of it, um, all of that. You know, I, I guess I, I see it twofold. You know, yes, there are schools that have, that are private or parochial schools or even schools that have open enrollment that, that are able to attract kids and, you know, maybe take away from programs like you were saying, that maybe it's their one shot to get down there by doing that. But I also think that there's, you know, one of the advantages that a private or parochial school might not have is, you know, we're getting kids in the ninth grade as opposed to being able to start developing them in the second or third grade and keeping that group of kids all the way through together. And, you know, I, I look at it, and I will credit um, from a girls basketball standpoint this year, Jordan Eaton at Olmstead Falls. You know, Olmstead Falls, those kids played together since they were in second grade, and none of those kids left. And I'm sure a lot of them had the opportunity to do it, but none of them left. They all stayed in that system. And that's a credit to him and his staff and his program that he was, he's able to keep them and keep and, and, and have those kids want to stay there. And I think it, you know, it's a double edged sword. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, it's easy. It, it, sometimes it's easy to say, well, those kids are just going to leave and go to greener pastures, but sometimes those pastures aren't what they want them to be. And they end up being there for, you know, a year or two, and then they go back or whatever it is. You know, I also think that it's, there is a part that falls on the coaches, whether it be in the private or parochial arena that are trying to build their program as best as they can and do it the right way. And the public school folks, I mean, listen, one of my good friends in coaching and Walt knows this, one of my good co- friends in coaching is, is and, and, and he's not coaching more. He just retired a couple a year or two ago was Dave Schlebaugh at Berlin Highland. And Dave is, Dave's a, a, an incredible basketball coach, but Dave also, you know, knows. Yeah. I mean, when we were able to get some really good players, but then trying to mold those personalities of really good players that come in together at ninth, the ninth grade level sometimes isn't the easiest thing to do. And we don't have the advantage of those kids playing together when he can start teaching his system you know, in the third grade. And I, and I think that there's, um, I think it, it works both ways. And um, I think the college game with the transfer portal is difficult to say the least. If I was a college basketball coach, I mean, I don't know how much, you know, are you really recruiting? I, I mean, you can basically just fill things out of that transfer portal. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say that, you know, and I think what one of the, one of the, um, unintended consequences of this of, of the the portal is i think high school kids have to look at if they're college athletes instead of waiting it out and and, and i'm not saying that you need to just jump on the first offer but i think that you, the longer you wait the more chance there is of a college coach maybe finding somebody in the transfer portal to fill that spot rather than taking you coming out of high school and i think that's an that's that's a, a an unintended consequence that's really out there because you know that we, they might say hey adam uh we really like you here at you know miami of ohio you know whatever and you know you're like yeah i know but i you know i'm going to look around and then you know what uh, two months later they're like hey walt over there has played already you know at and at, at at you know evansville and he put his name in the transfer portal and we've seen some film on him 
you know, he's got some college that we're going to take him instead of Adam now because, and, and Adam's out, you know, now he's, he's, he got lucky and he's at Hawaii, but whatever. I mean, there's unintended consequences with it. I think from a high school standpoint right now, that part of it is, um, you know, are there a lot of loopholes? Of course. Are people going to try to exploit everything? Of course. You know, I mean, I, I totally, I, I know that it's our job as administrators to do what is best for the student athletes and to follow the rules that, that are in place as put there by the OHSAA. And, and, you know, that's what we, we as administrators need to um, focus on as we move forward. Well, coach, thank you for your honest feedback on that. You know, the one thing where you did make a mistake was, is there's no one that would have passed me over for Walt Serrato <laughs> when, when it well, came to recruiting. The only upside to that is you ended up in Hawaii in my story. Yeah. That, that yeah, is yeah, true. Yeah. Well, Coach, as we transition here, um, one of the the things that we were excited about in bringing you on was your unique resume that uh, you can share with our listeners is you've had tremendous success on the sidelines, uh, but now you're on the other side of the table, constantly interviewing and evaluating coaches to maintain the high standards for athletics uh, that has been set at Magnificat that you talked about earlier. So the next few questions are going to be geared around helping our current or prospective coaches uh, tuning in on how they can get a leg up when it comes to the interview process. Because, you know, once that state tournament ends, you start to hear about more and more openings. It's the interview season. So I guess my first question that I have for you in regards to this is when initially looking at cover letters, resumes, reference letters, et cetera, uh, for a potential coaching position, what can candidates do to, to separate themselves from others and cause you to say, hey, I really need to talk to this person? Well, it's a hard question to answer. Experience is is key. But then, you know, the flip side is how do you get experience without somebody taking a chance on you, right, or, or, or in that initial phase? You know, I think that there are certain programs throughout the state, whether it be private, parochial, public, I don't think it really matters. I think that there are certain programs throughout the state that experience is going to carry a higher value than it might at some other schools. And I'm not, I, I, when I say that, I, I, I don't want that to come off the wrong way and, and, and sound like that's a, a condescending statement towards, towards other schools. I don't mean it that way. But, you know, there's, there's just certain programs I think that, that experience is going to be a, a very key piece of it. And when I say experience, it can be experience at the head coaching level. It can be experience as an assistant coach. It doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. But I think experience in coaching high school athletes is a key piece of it when you're looking at a lot of the resumes that we look at. When I look at a resume and when I look at a cover letter, I guess, you know, I'm looking for two things. Number one, I'm looking for somebody who is going to provide our athletes with a great experience in the sport that we're talking about. And when I when I say a great experience, I mean, you know, that they're going to be a role model, that they're going to live the mission of our school, that they're going to have a culture, you know, that is something that those young ladies are going to come out not only as better players, but as better people when they're now, you know, going to leave the school and go on and, and enter the real world that is out there. The second part of it is, and I'd be straight up lying to you if I didn't say this, we're looking to win. I mean, I, like, I'm not saying that we've got to win. If you don't win the state title and we're, we're, that's not good enough. I don't mean it that way, but we're, we are in a competitive school. We're in a competitive environment like most schools are. And we, we certainly at the, you know, we want to win. 
I think that anybody who says, "Oh, that's not that important," it, 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 they're 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 it, that's a fantasy. I mean, I don't know. Like they're lying. I, I don't know what you want me to say. They're, they're just in that regard. I just don't think it's that that's not an accurate statement. I mean, again, is it the the, the guiding principle? No, but I mean, you know, I, I'm sure that the parents at any school that are in any program and the communities around them and the booster clubs aren't being like, "Boy, he's a hell of a good person," or "She's a hell of a nice lady." It's okay that they don't ever win. No. I mean, you, you, I think there's, that's a part of it that, that is, but it's also got to be wrapped in, you know, for us living the mission of our school and for us also having those girls, you know, be in the, and those athletes be in a program that is teaching them life lessons and, you know, teaching them how to become better people. Um, and that can be in a, in a variety of forms that are out there. It can be, you know, turning them into a leader within that program. It can be having that, that those kids that are spearheading service projects, you know, that, that those teams do. It can be, you know, being role models for the younger players that are in those programs. You know, there's all kinds of different ways for, for cultures to be set and teams to grow. But I think those are the two things when I look at interviewing candidates um, that are separators um, for us. And, and and I mean, clearly, if there's somebody that has, you know, had past success, I mean, that 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 has to come into um, that has to come into it as well. Yeah, so someone who comes in with that that vision to grow the student athlete, not only on the court, but off the court as well. And it, it helps, too, when you win some games on the flip side, you know, all the all the interviews you've done. What are some common missteps that you see coaching candidates struggle with when they're interviewing? I think sometimes I would rather have somebody be completely honest with me about their experiences and their background versus trying to manufacture something that isn't the answer to the question, if that makes sense. You know, if I, you know, hey, have you ever had a real parent issue that you had to deal with and how did you deal with it? Rather than, you know, embellishing on something. I'd rather people say, you know, I've had a couple of issues, but nothing really that comes to mind that was really so shattering for me. I, I, you know, and that's just an example. I would rather have people be transparent. And sometimes, you know, I haven't had that experience or, you know, if I, if I ask about, Hey, did you ever do, did your teams ever do a community service project? If you didn't, that's okay. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean we're not going to hire. I mean, it just, okay, I'd rather, you know, the, the answer I'd rather have is, you know, we haven't, but boy, that, that really sounds like something I'd really like to explore, you know, and, and have our, our program do. And I think sometimes the desire to come in and try to say what you think people want to hear is um, an easy way to try to, you know, sidestep an interview. We have a, a pretty defined interview process at Magnificat for our head coaches where we, we would put people through, you know, a first round and then a second round with different people in them that are approaching the interview from different ways to try to get a, a read on, you know, the, a person who's going to be the leader of a program. And when I say that, we don't all, we don't put assistant coaches through that because, you know, we believe that the head coaches are going to hire the right people and, and we'll vet those people from an assistant coach standpoint, but a head coach is, you know, a major part of our community uh, at Magnificat. And we expect them to be, you know, visible in a lot of other ways than just being on the floor or on the field or whatever it is. And I think the way we do that, I think is a, a good way to um, try to limit the pitfalls that are out there. You know, one of the other things I, I would say to answer that question is, you know, it's easy for me to look at it as, you know, I'm the athletic director. So, you know, I'm the guy that's looking at 
you know, the athletic piece of hiring a head coach. And while I, it would be easy for me to sit here and say, oh, you know, I want him to be a good person. I want him to develop a culture. You know, that's all true. But sometimes bringing in people in from the academic background, you know, at our school or administrators from, you know, our mission area or, you know, from our student life area, you know, they're hitting on other aspects of what it means to be a coach and what it means to be an adult in our building. And sometimes that puts up red flags or reinforces how well we think of a person by their answers to some of the questions that, you know, I might not ask, you know, because again, I'm focused on, you know, the athletic piece of it, you know, as opposed to how, how they would embody the mission of, of their, uh, you know, within their program. Yeah. You know, coach, I think, uh, that honesty and that transparency is is so important when you go through that process um, to build that trust uh, with the people that you're interviewing because it's not like you're not going to do your homework because you are going to do your homework and it, and if there's skeletons and there's things in their past that they weren't truthful about you're going to find out about it and you'd rather know up front I would assume and be able to address it with the candidate and and you know you guys. I mean, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, you're, you're doing reference checks and phone calls and, you know, and not that you're not doing that now, but now another part of the, the, the check of a background and I is searching social media to find out, you know, what's going on, you know, because that, that's just a reality of the world and where we are today. You know, I, I mean, that's not, that's probably not something that was in play 12 years ago. That, that's just a true statement. I mean, I, you know, it's not a, it's not anything that anybody you're out there doesn't know. I mean, it's just the truth. Absolutely. So coach, uh, give us a few of your favorite questions you like to ask when interviewing coaches and then why you ask those questions. I always ask coaches when I'm hiring a head coach, how are you going to fill out a staff? Um, because I think that that is a really important piece of being a head coach. And depending on when you're coming into a, a program, depending on A, where you're coming from, and B, and, and, and when I say where you're coming from, that is like a geographic statement for me. So like, I mean, you know, it's, you know, for me at Magnificat, if we are hiring a head coach that lives on the west side of Cleveland, well, there's probably a lot of connections. If we are hiring a head coach from Cincinnati, maybe not a lot of connections. Trying to staff an entire program is hard. People always ask me, how do you find assistant coaches? I'm like, well, I mean, truthfully, assistant coaches, a lot of it is word of mouth or the head coach knowing people or knowing somebody from a club or an AAU or a, a you know, a, a travel, you know, perspective or having had a history with somebody. Because, I mean, the reality of it is it's not like they're, you know, if, I, if I'm posting an assistant field hockey coach job, it's not like there's a lot of people trolling around for that position. And I don't mean that in any disrespectful way to that sport or anything. I, that, I could be talking about volleyball or bat, I mean, it's, it, it's just, you know, you're not, those are hard positions to fill. So I think that that is a really undervalued question. And, you know, it's it, a second part of that question is when we talk about that, you know, what kind of people are we looking for in the program? What, what are you looking for in a JV coach? What are you looking for in a freshman coach? What are the goals of those programs in relation to your vision for your overall program? Not, not you know, your varsity program for sure, but, but the, the vision you have for your overall program moving forward. I think the other big, one of the other favorite questions I have to ask them is, Tell me how you become a better coach by listening to your assistant coaches and player. And sometimes that is a, a real interesting answer to some of those questions. I think it's really healthy for 
coaches not always to agree on everything within their program. We never want that to happen in front of the athletes. But last thing you want is somebody that just is like, yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. Yeah, I mean, no, you need people that are going to say, you know what, what are you doing? We can't play man here. We can't guard that 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 perimeter like that. We, that we can't run that. And, and I used to tell my captains, you know, look, I'm not, if, if there's a, a, if you think I was out of line or you think that I said something wrong, come into my office and tell me that I'm fine. That's why you're a captain. You know, don't do it in front of the other players. And, you know, I think how you respond to that as a coach and how you can answer that question. The, the, I, I don't want to hear from coaches that we're looking to hire. Oh, we're just going to find some people that agree with my philosophy. Well, of, of course you are. Of course you're going to find people you're trying to agree with your philosophy. Otherwise, you're not going to hire them. I mean, what the, that, that, that's common sense. But you want people that can you, that can challenge you to make you a better coach. And the other part of that is, you know, you you as a head coach are trying to develop those people to move on from your program and take and become head coaches. I mean, I you know, since I've been at Magnificat, I've I've had this is the third assistant athletic director that I've had in the eight years. It, it's a good thing, and, and I don't mean that. I, I love the other two people that were there. Don't misunderstand, and they did a great job. But they moved on to other positions because they felt like that was something that they they were ready for and ready to do. And I think that's a sign of of having people in your program that are able to grow under you, whether that be as an administrator or a head coach. I, I think one of the greatest things is if you're you're a head coach and your assistants go on and become a head coach at another program, that's a great thing. I think that says a lot about the program and the girls that you know the players that are in it and the and the program that they're coming from. Coach Walsh shaking his head right now. Because he he want, wanted me to hear that. So when he suggests that I run a zone or a diamond and one or a one three chaser, that I actually do it instead of being stubborn and just playing man the whole game. So he loved that. I, I, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he, he did. He loved that. So, hey, coach, one more question before we, we, we kind of move away from the interview process. But yeah. I've always wondered this. Um, in your position, when, when a candidate does come in to interview, what would you recommend they bring with them to an interview for the committee to review? I think part of the answer to that question is a little sports specific, but in general, I think people that come in with an organizational plan of what they foresee in their program sometimes carries a lot of weight. It's, you know, if if somebody comes into me and hands me a, a little, you know, booklet of, Hey, this is how I structure my offseason. This is how I structure my preseason. This is what I look for in the tryouts. This is what I look for. You know, this is what one of our practice plans is going to look for. This is what one of our scouting reports looks like. Excuse me, looks like. You know, I think showing me that they took the time to um, put that together and, and gave that some forethought, I think, is really important. The other thing I would say is that I would advise people is if you're going to interview for a high school program, please know something about the high school. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I mean, please go into the interview knowing that, you know, hey, this school has 900 boys in it, or, you know, I oh, hey, I saw that last year that they made it to the district final. Knowing that at least that there was some time spent looking into the program or or, or even knowing, hey, I saw, you know, I, I know that these are these two players are returning next year. And boy, I, I, I would be just thrilled to coach those pe- those players. You know, I think goes a lot a long way when you're in an interview process, when you're trying to separate yourself from three or four other candidates that are, you know, going to come in and talk. You know, and, and I'm not asking people to put together like a, a syllabus. I, I don't mean it that way. 
but at least having something, you know, sometimes the, giving somebody something tangible to look at and be like, hey, I just wanted to see what one of my practice plans looked like. Or, you know, even if we're talking about from a, a standpoint of, hey, this is how I would do some things like, you know, I, I think our youth summer camps would be great. And this is how I, w- I would structure it and how I would have our girls work that. You know, I, I think anything like that, that that is a ancillary, you know, over and above just answering questions, I think, is a, is, is a separator. So kind of changing gears a little bit, you know, one of the things we do a lot, I'm, I'm sure you do as well, is you, know, you talk with other coaches, administrators. One of the most common topics that comes up is about trying to master that work-life balance while still finding success in what is a highly competitive field that we're all in. What are some things that you've done and still try to do to strike that balance? You know, I was very fortunate from a coaching standpoint that my wife was very, is, was very involved in terms of, you know, going to games and, and um, feeling like she was part of the program. God love her. She, you know, transported my mother and mother-in-law back and forth to Columbus and back and forth to games and, you know, whatever it was, you know, now as an AD, you know, hours are long at certain times of the year. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a little different. Um, you know, I have to leave on a Saturday and drive to a swim meet for two hours in Canton or wherever, you know, and then, and I'm gone for, you know, six hours, you know, with travel time or, you know, I, I, I you know, or drive down on a Friday to the state gymnastics meet and then turn around and drive back home. You know, I, I think that it's hard if you don't have a partner or, or family that supports what you do and knows how passionate you are about your job. Um, I think that's a difficult thing. I also think though, that you do have to take some time for yourself and not get burned out. And one of the things that I think being able to delegate um, and trust the people that are around you is an important thing. You know, my assistant athletic director right now is fantastic. Her name's Katie Galloway and she does a great job. I trust her with anything. And, um, you know, I think that the kids and the coaches knowing that if she says it's it's one way or the other, that that's basically the same thing as me saying it is an important thing. And I think I, I try to go out of my way to make sure that that is known by the coaches and the athletes and the parents that that's the case. And I think that that's the same way from a basketball standpoint, from a coaching standpoint. You know, one of the things you know this, Walt, you coach. I mean, you know, I would literally walk out of practice and let the assistants run practice because I wanted the kids to know that they had the same authority that I had, you know, as coaches, that they're not just there to stand there and that they need to be listened to and respected like um, like a head coach is or, or from an AD standpoint, you know, that part of it now too. I mean, you know, so sometimes it's hard. It's hard for me as an AD to, you know, like, okay, if we have a home soccer game, you know, it's hard for me to leave, you know, and be like, okay, I'm going to leave it in the hands of somebody else. But I mean, I trust, you know, you have to trust that the people you hired are going to do the job. They're, you know, they're, they're there to do the right things. And, and that's, that's what I have now. And um, I think being able to get away from that and spend time with your family and, you know, find an outlet, whether it be that, you know, you're going to work out or whether you have a hobby or, you know, I mean, whatever it's going to be, you've got, you got to spend some time away from it and get away from it. You, you can't just continually work 14 hour days and think you're not going to get burned out because you're going to. So Paul, now we'd like to transition to a segment that we call triple threat, where we're going to give you three topics and let you share your thoughts, ideas, experience, and or suggestions with our listeners. Are you ready? Sure. Hit me. The first question in our triple threat package is about Title IX. Are we closing that gap with Title IX? I would say we definitely are. You know, if you look at now the coverage that is out there for women's, uh, you know, athletics, 
be it at the high school level, the college level, you know, and certainly another thing that really is going to help close the gap is the NIL piece of it. A lot of the name, image, and likeness people that are are really capitalizing on it, for lack of a better way to put it, are female athletes at the college level. And I think that that's certainly going to help close the gap. But I mean, just look now, I mean, you know, you have, you know, women's college games or, you know, for basketball right now are on ESPN and ESPN2 and before they wouldn't weren't even on. Um, look at the MAC tournament at Rocket Mortgage, you know, a couple weeks ago. I mean, the women's games were really well attended, um, as were the men's for sure. But, you know, and, and, you know, the opportunities that are out there for women, you know, for, for girls going to college whether it be for athletics or not. I mean, you know, I, I think, but from an athletic standpoint for Title IX, you know, there's just so many opportunities out there in a lot of sports that are even not mainstream sports, but, you know, rowing and and and, and um, rugby and, and sailing and, you know, a bunch of, you know, uh, you know sports that people don't, don't really think about when it, you're thinking about it, they're all out there. And um, I, I think the gap is definitely um, closing. So we touched on this a little earlier, and, and your last answer kind of alluded to it, that trickle-down effect from the professional level to college down to high school. Do you ever envision a day where the transfer portal or NIL makes its way into high school athletics? It would hard, be hard for me to see the transfer portal do that the way it's set up currently for, for the NCAA. I, I just can't really imagine how that would even work. But the NIL thing... I think at some point is going to, you know, it's out there in other states. And I think that eventually it's going to trickle itself down into the high school level. And you're going to get some kids that, you know, are going to get NIL money. And um, I I just don't know that there's anything that can be done to, I I mean, I know it got voted down last year, but I think that it's going to be a recurring issue that comes up on referendums. and, And I think at some point it's going to probably get challenged to a point where it's eventually going to get pushed through. And, you know, you're going to have you know, situations where there are going to be, you know, kids that benefit from representing, you know, certain entities for sure. So coach, our final question is, in your opinion, what has led to the decline of participation in athletics and what can be done to fix it? I still think that there's a lot of participation in athletics, but I think now it has whittled its way down to a lot of one sport athletes way too soon. The Number of double and triple sport athletes that we see it, that I see at the high school level is declining. I've been at Magnificat now eight years, and I think I've seen one 12 season athlete in that eight year period, which, you know, out of a school that has 450 girls participating in athletics, you know, in a given year out of 700, that's not a, that's not a good, I mean, like from that perspective, that's not a good number. I think that, you know, there's kids that, that double sport athletes, you know, in, in certain sports that have that normal transition. I, I think hard part is, you know, nowadays, I think in sports like basketball, volleyball, soccer, football for boys, you know, the, those mainstream sports, you need to play that sport year round to make your varsity team in a lot of situations. And I think that is a lot different than it was 12 years ago, 15 years ago, certainly 20 or, you know, 30 years ago. When I was growing up, I mean, you know, kids that played AAU basketball or, you know, travel stuff like that were kids that were going to play in college in that sport, but it wasn't everybody. It was, it was a few and far between. Now, those kids, you know, kids that play club volleyball or J.O. volleyball or AAU basketball, I mean, they, they feel they have to play not only because they need, they're, they're doing it to go to college, but they're doing it. Otherwise, they're not going to make their varsity you know, team in that respective sport. And I think what you have is, you know, a kid that is growing up and, you know, plays volleyball, basketball and softball, you know, 
when they choose one of them, the other two, which were secondary sports, that they could very well be major contributors in, kind of go by the wayside because they have to play year-round in that other sport. And it's in fairness, I, I mean, if you have a kid that is a J.O. volleyball player that is practicing a couple days a week and playing tournaments on the weekends or, or an AAU basketball player that's doing the same thing, it's hard for that person to play softball when they have games almost every day and games on the weekend. One is suffering versus the other. And I think that that's a that's a, a really hard dynamic in 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 sports now, when you have you know, you have so many people focusing so early on one sport. I, I also think that sometimes the downside of that is, you know, the injury component that comes into it because they're not they're not utilizing different muscle groups. They're not utilizing different you know d- you know different motor skills like they would if they were playing multiple sports and those are challenging things for for athletic directors right now as we look at different programs i mean you know i think there's a there's a pendulum too that swings a little bit you know and and i'm speaking from a girls sports standpoint you know right now it seems like every kid in the world plays volleyball that is coming into you know our high school the numbers in basketball are down you know why is that I mean, I don't know that I have an answer for it. I mean, I might have a thought, but I mean, I, I, you know, is it because of the physical nature of basketball and soccer and kids just don't want to get banged around like that and where volleyball isn't necessarily as physical in, in terms of player to player contact? Um, I don't know. Maybe that is it. I, I, you know, maybe it's just that volleyball is the popular sport right now or seemingly the popular sport. And, you know, that the clubs that are out there do a great job of marketing it and and starting kids so young and they get wrapped up into it. And, you know, that just carries over. I I do think it's a shame. I mean, I will tell you that because I think that there are some sports that do suffer just because they're, they're secondary sports for a lot of athletes that would definitely help those sports. But simply because they don't, those those athletes don't feel that they can get to the level. They, they they almost have to to resign themselves to the fact that I'm only going to get to a certain level if I play multiple sports. Versus, I really want to be good at the one sport that I play. That's my primary sport. And forcing them to make that decision, I think, is putting a difficult. It's it's a challenging thing, I think, for the athletes, the coaches, and the administrators, and the parents, quite frankly, that are out there. Hey, Paul, we have one last question for you. But before we get to that, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been great getting to chop it up with you and and catch up a little bit and and spending time with us here on the Holding Court Podcast. Well, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate the time you guys have spent. I, I certainly am honored to have been brought on. You know, Coach, I, I guess the final question we have for you, what is the best investment you have made in your career as both a coach and athletic director? From a coaching standpoint, I think the best investment that I've made was dedicating the amount of time that it took to see the differences, the difference that myself as a coach and the other coaches that were around me, be it assistant coaches and even even opposing coaches, seeing the, the, the amount that it changes the lives of the kids that I coached. I think that would be the, the best investment that I saw. From an athletic director standpoint, I think it is a little more of a global answer. I feel like as an athletic director, you you have more resources, I guess, to change a lot of, of the different programs, both that are, that are, are you know, around you um, that you see on a daily basis, but also depending on how much, and, and I guess you would say this about coaching associations too, but depending on how much you get involved as an athletic administrator in the associations that are out there to, that are there to make differences in 
the athletic programs that our, our athletes participate in, whether that's being involved in the district boards, whether that's being involved in the, the Athletic Administrators Association, whether that's taking and, and helping with leadership training courses for, for athletes and for other, you know, for coaches and for athletic administrators. I think those are all investments of, of your time that make a difference in people's lives beyond just the, the, the things that, that people actually do see. For example, and I'm, I'm in charge of all the, I'm the Northeast liaison for golf for Northeast Ohio boys and girls tournaments. So I set up all the sectional and district tournaments um, throughout the golf courses in the area that goes from all the way up, you know, you know, on the West side of Cleveland to all the way down to Trumbull County. You know, for me to to be involved with that and 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 spend time doing that, I think may, is is a great thing for me as a person, and and to see those kids appreciate and the coaches appreciate everything you do, and um, how much it makes a difference in in the lives of those kids and coaches. Um, for me, I think is the the biggest investment we can make as athletic administrators. Thanks for listening to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, keep up with us on Twitter and Facebook at OhioBKCoaches, on Instagram at OHSBCA1947, and online at www.oh.nhsbca.org. Until next time.